Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. Actually, I'm sorry, pop-up Chinese villa. We have moved up in the world, have we not, Jeremy? I am impressed and amazed, and I say props to pop-up Chinese, who are clearly uh, on the up and up. Yeah, absolutely. We love the new studio. The new studio is awesome. Um, the old studio, I think we, we should we should probably talk about that a little bit. I should introduce myself to you. This is Kaiser Guo. I'm the, the host, of course, of Seneca. And with me, of course, is Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. So, Jeremy, let's, let's talk about the old place. The old place was basically Joe's apartment, a cockroach-infested dive dark <laughs> uh, which we always describe as pop-up chinese towers yeah with some very unpleasant neighbors who frequently complained about us uh, the toilet didn't flush well that was the best part the toilet didn't flush you actually had to fill this basin with water and then like flush it. and many of our guests uh no no uh, have experienced uh the old place and and i'm really delighted to uh to, to get them into the new place. So today, um, we've agreed to hang up our hostile foreign holsters at the door to the new studio and talk only about what China and mainly about what the Chinese leadership is doing right in, in the era since essentially performing opening. Uh, and to join us in this is one of our favorite perennial guests, someone who can always be counted on to bring historical perspective and dick jokes uh, to the show, the director of IES Abroad Beijing Center, and he's also moved up in the world. Huh? You were like director last time, or director of Chinese studies before. Now you're you're like the head honcho there, right? I am. And well that man you just heard talking, of course, is the man also behind the excellent Granite Studio blog, Mr. Jeremiah Jenny. Welcome back, Jeremiah. How you doing, Kaiser? It's great to be here at Pop Up Villa. I have to say, Pop Up Chinese has moved up in the Beijing world like the goddamn Jeffersons. Yeah, yeah we sure have. <laughs> anyway. Um, before we jump to the topic, today is a day of summetry. Uh, we're recording on Friday afternoon right now. So uh, right now, I guess they should be getting ready to get together uh, down in Southern California and the shirt sleeve summit at Sunnylands between, of course, uh, Presidents Barack Obama and Xi Jinping. Um, so let's let's chat a little bit about the summit and what we might expect from it. Jeremiah, do you have any big expectations out of out of this first real formal meeting between the two? I really don't. I mean, I've seen some things that say like this is the biggest meeting since Nixon went to China in 1972, and I, I have a suspicion that's probably been said about a lot of you know first summits between Chinese leaders and the U.S. presidents. But I mean, that said, I, if we're not going to have grand historical expectations, I do think there's good things that'll come out of it. If for no other reason than it seems, I mean, I think that the two might actually, on a personal level, get on. I mean, it's not the most important thing. But at the end of the day, they have some established some kind of rapport beyond, you know, dueling press releases, I think is only a step forward. Jeremy, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of, of controversy over this topic of how important are personal relationships between uh, heads of state? Uh, in, in, in your opinion, th does it matter that, that, you know, they can... Well, as someone who has a lot of personal relationships <laughs> with heads of state, <laughs> I'm obviously eminently qualified to comment on this topic. Um, I, I think that our PR friends would perhaps call this optics. And I think that a lot of people who are invested in the U.S.-China relationship, such as the three of us in the studio, are very hopeful that this will move things along a little bit so that maybe we can get over some of the the negativity that has been surrounding the relationship in the last few years. 
And that's why people are, are seeing this as very important. And it does seem that both Obama and Xi Jinping and their, their administrations have agreed to uh, let something happen that is supposed to be a feel-good thing. But I don't know. Why did Michelle Obama not why is she not going going to attend? You know, why is there this negative reporting about the fact that uh, Michelle Obama and Pang Liyuan are not going to have the photo op together? Why didn't they do that? I don't know. Anyway, one of the things that's been coming from the Chinese side quite a bit is this business of a new pattern of major power relations. Uh, and this has been interpreted in different ways. Some people sort of saying, you know, uh, it's, it's disruptive. This is China upending things. Um, What's your take on, on, on this, either of you guys? What do you think? I, I read an interesting piece by uh, a senior fellow from the Brookings Institution, Richard Bush III. Uh, he actually argued, and I thought rather convincingly, that, that it's what it is is you know, when you talk about a new pattern in uh, major power relations, what, what it is is a, it's an implicit repudiation of the old pattern or a desire to avoid the old pattern. And by, by the old pattern, he means that a new rising power uh, necessarily disrupts the old order and uh, challenges it and ends up in sort of a, a, a situation of perpetual conflict with the old incumbent. Well, isn't that, I mean, obviously China wants to project the idea that they don't want to get into a conflict with the United States. So I, I think that is part of it. I think the other part of it is also that I think China's fairly consistently over the last 10 or 20 years been sending signals to the uh, maybe we can call it the international community uh, that they don't want international organizations and international relationships to be run in the same way that they have been in the past. Right. So it's at once sort of anti-status quo and at the same time saying, look, don't be too threatened by us. Don't be threatened by us. But on the other hand, we shouldn't just go back to the old playbook. Right. Well, I think, too, I mean, you know, this is, again, the historian talking, but I think it's funny that China sometimes looks at these, these arrangements or this rhetoric and says, yeah, you guys want us to play by this international system of rules and fair trade and, you know, all these different, uh, you know, all these different requirements that are being placed on us from outside. We've been through this before. And even if the rest of the world doesn't quite make the connection between, you know, 21st century griping about China's industry, industry, economy, human rights, and, you know, 19th century of imperialist rhetoric, rhetoric, most people in China do, and a lot of the Chinese leadership does. Right. And for them, I mean, the fact that the same countries, and the U.S. being one of them, that continually harps on China's shortcomings are the same countries that, you know, 150 years ago had no problem with using military force to strip China of its sovereignty. You know, a lot of people look at that and they don't see, they, they see the immediate connection, even if the rest of the world is not. And so I, when in these kind of situations, when you have a leader like Xi Jinping meeting a leader like President Obama on equal terms, you know, I think that that's something that sends a very strong signal to Chinese people here that, yeah, I mean, you know, China is, a, is going to be a major player. Is there going to be conflict? You know, who knows? But at least China is being taken seriously. And that is a huge step forward because I think for a long time, you know, this – it's only been in the last couple of summits that U.S. presidents haven't felt the need to hector China on a range of issues openly. 
Sure. Now, there was one particular issue on which uh, much hectoring was going to be done, and that was, of course, on the issue of cybersecurity, uh, recent allegations, of course, about uh, Chinese IP theft and, and, and so forth, uh, cyber espionage m- mostly. Uh, but uh, that may have changed. I mean, can we expect that, that the tone will change now, that Obama will strike a different tone now that – uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald in The Guardian, as well as The Washington Post, have both published major pay- pieces that allege that the NSA, the National Security Agency, has since 2007 been running a program called PRISM, which, you know, allows them at will pretty much to tap into every major American internet service, you know, everything from Google to Yahoo to AOL to Skype, even. Uh, do you think that this uh, kind of undermines the the position of, of the American president to, you know, does, does, it, does it make it more difficult for him to gain purchase on the moral high ground, as it were? Jeremy? I don't think that there was really, uh, uh, I mean, the, the Chinese government position on this has been pretty consistent for the last year or two, which is what they've said is that all countries are victims of hacking. China is a victim of hacking. Most hacking comes out of the United States. I, I don't think Xi Jinping would negotiate, would, would like say to Obama, okay, you know, all right, you know, uh, Barry, we're going to stop hacking. Right. It's all cool. We'll stop hacking your shit, you know. I, that was never going to happen. Of course I mean, not. But I mean, the, the whole the, the, what I'm, t- I'm talking about is, uh, you know, will Obama be able to deliver the message that he had originally, presumably, intended to deliver? Well, I, I mean, I think the Chinese position is always and still and always going to be prove it. And regardless of whatever domestic news is coming about, you know, the U.S. government's activities, you know, the Chinese response, as Jeremy said, for a long time has kind of begun and end with that. Right, I mean, but there, there may not even be a need to respond if, if he doesn't bring it up at this point. Oh, he'll bring it, it still... up. I, I can't imagine he won't, um, even with this recent disclosure. In fact, I saw... You, you, you know what I think the only difference is? I think that uh, kind of left-leaning liberal American journalists are going to find it more difficult to be really critical of China about hacking over the next few days because they're going to feel like hypocrites if they they do. I think that's the only difference. I don't think it will make any difference to what Obama wants to say or what Xi Jinping wants to say. Although it was sort of left-leaning American journalists who exposed this particular problem in America, whereas left-leaning Chinese one... journalists have not really done a whole lot of work Sorry. on the Chinese government. And they in. won't. And But it was one particular left-leaning journalist, Glenn Greenwald. Who, Glenn Greenwald, right. You know, who is... Kind of a, you know, sui generis kind of guy. I mean, there are not a lot of Glenn, Glenn Greenwalds uh, in the American media. No. Did, did, I see, did I see somewhere somebody was sort of joking, half joking, maybe joking, that the timing of this was so coincidental that is it possible the tip came from China? That was me, actually. That was, that was me on Facebook. I said, if I were a conspiracy Then it was crazy. <laughs> then it was crazy, right. Uh, anyway, let's, let's, let's move on Maybe to the main topic. Kaiser provided the tip. <laughs> <laughs> so l- let's talk about the main topic for today. What is China getting right? I mean, clearly China is getting something right. I mean, uh, here's something to ponder, which a friend of mine who wishes to remain anonymous wrote the other day on a Facebook post. He wrote, um, here's a simple test. According to Wikipedia, in 1989, China's GDP purchasing par- power parity per capita was roughly equivalent to that of Haiti. Nigeria, and Laos. Its per capita GDP was half that of Syria, 
the Philippines or Bolivia. 24 years later, which of those countries would you want, would you like to live in? I mean, not talking just about money. What country would you want to stroll through, to have brunch in, to send your kids to school in, to start a business in, or to build a home? Uh, for reference, in 1989, the U.S. GDP per capita, also PPP, I presume, was 30 times larger than China's. It's now about five and a half times larger than China's. Now, that would be a remarkable accomplishment for a small country, but we are talking over a billion people. The, the Chinese government has, in 24 years, accomplished that for the largest population of humans on the planet. Some more recent uh, evidence, of, if you will, uh, two polls conducted by the Pew Foundation and by Telefonica with the Financial Times, and tip of the hat to Matt Scavenza of The Atlantic for these. Um, so in the Pew, the Pew poll, uh, Chinese surveyed about their sentiments on the economy and their outlook were overwhelmingly positive. 88% believed the economy was good. That's up 6% from 2007. So even, you know, a few years after the, the, the economic meltdown, uh, 88% of Chinese surveyed have a very positive outlook on, on China's economy. In the Telefonica FT poll, which surveyed millennials, um, you know, people born, I guess, we, we'd call them Baling Ho or Jolin Ho, um, 93%, I said that, 93% of young Chinese said that they thought their country's best days were still ahead. Only a third of the young Chinese surveyed said they did not believe that their country represented their values and beliefs. Uh, the number was much higher in Japan and South Korea, with three out of four saying this in Japan, and two out of three saying that they didn't identify with their governments in terms of values and beliefs. In, uh, I mean, that, that, that's remarkable. I mean, in other words, we're talking about two-thirds of, of young millennials believe that their, uh, their values align essentially with those of the party. Uh, you know, Kaiser, I've got to say, I don't believe any polls like this. I mean... You well, know, of course, you know you can take I, I a poll and make any it. Of them. It's like you ask anybody on the street or on the phone or over the internet, like, uh, do you believe the government? Are you in your, your goals in line with the government? They're going to say things that essentially have no connection to any real thing. But what, what I think is real that you're referring to is that uh, whether uh, because they planned it that way or because they got lucky. Under the Communist Party's leadership in the last 30 years, this place for most people has got much better. Yes. And that, I think, is something that, you know, one cannot really say enough because especially when it comes to people like me who are complaining about China all the time, one does tend to have a very negative impression of the place. But for the average person, which is basically a quarter or a fifth of humanity, Life has got better here in the last 30 years. There, I don't think there's any question about that. And that is an amazing, remarkable accomplishment. Yeah, and that, that's a good place to start. But what, 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 let's do this. Jeremy, you recently part of this conversation that ta- happened on China File, uh, which included people like Michael Zhao and Jim Fallows and Orville Schell uh, talking about this, this very topic, about what China is getting right. So maybe let's, let's start by just talking about some of the points that some of the other participants in that conversation raised. Uh, Jeremy, uh, you've got your own list, and we'll save that for, for as the three of us discuss. But um, let's let's look very quickly at what, you know, Michael Giles said. I think his focus was on basically the uh, the beginnings, at least, of real scientific progress in China. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that's a good place to start. I think one of the reasons why we've seen that is because the ability to collaborate internationally in the sciences is much greater 
Um, and I think part of that has to do with that scientists in China and scientists around the world speak the same language. Mm-hmm. I don't mean you know Chinese or English, but I mean that uh, scientific equations, scientific formulas, scientific methods are relatively consistent between China and the rest of the world. Except, except when for, it comes to you know human paleoanthropology. <laughs> well, that's but again, there you go into the realm of social sciences and humanities, at which for which the starting point is vastly different. Right, but in the hard sciences, the hard sciences, mathematics, and these kind of and, and those kind of subjects, subjects which, by the way, I know nothing about, and that's why I am rather poor. But in any point, anyway, the the thing is with those that people can collaborate very easily, and I think that's one reason we've seen such enormous gains. And I, I agree with Michael Jow that I think some of the more import, most important advances that we're going to see in the next decades are going to come out of China. You know, not as, as I as as he said, not every grand scheme, not every grand um, grand investment is going to pay off. But I really think that we're going to see some very uh, important discoveries and important developments coming out of this side of the Pacific. Let's let's drill down in this question a little bit. Um, recently, Joe Biden uh, gave a speech that generated some controversy at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and the part that, that bothered me, I mean, he sort of channeled Steve Jobs. He, he actually made, made uh, explicit reference to Jobs and uh, this notion that uh, in order, that, that one has to think different, right? Uh, that China is forever cursed not to be innovative because people can't think different because they can't express themselves freely and all this, which which I, I think is a lot of hooey. And I, I would say, well, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, when he was, say, in, in Milan under um, Ludovico Sforza, I don't think Sforza was probably the most enlightened sovereign in the whole world, and yet he was an unequivocally, uh, you know, a creative fella. You know, there were... Plenty of innovations in human history that came, uh, you know, in 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 conditions of less than perfect freedom of expression, freedom to challenge authority. Uh, uh, Kaiser, yes, but you know what? I think we're going in the wrong direction with this because I really want this show, this podcast, to be the fifty cent edition. I want to talk about what's good in China, and if we start talking about innovation, I I will be forced to be my usual old self and say <laughs> that the situation here is bad. Okay, so let's let's so, let's, you know, we let's have talk then. China, blah, China, you know, yeah, yeah, Jeremy, have another beer. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I get Let, you. Let's innovation is not where we are going to discuss. Okay, so let's the talk about then, then current Chinese culture. But but what, what, what we that's not what we're talking about. The greatness of current Chinese culture. We're talking about you know what primarily works. what things are right. What, what's innovation working. is not what works in China. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't work. There's n- very little innovation. We have to be honest. Uh, so okay, I'm going to put my head in the dragon's mouth and just. I think that perhaps it's been true up to now, but I do think that we're going to see some innovations. Whatever, coming. let's see it. It ain't happening yet. So if we want to talk about the positive, which we do, let's move on. Because I'm sorry, the patents are fake. The IPR registrations are fake. The Xiaomi iPhone. Okay, all right, no, Jeremy. Rip off of Steve Jobs. Please so note that, that minute, fifth, minute fifteen into the into the podcast about what China is doing right, Jeremy has already, already gone on a rant against China. <laughs> just stop being such an asshole, dude. Just, just, we're, we're all we, we put our anti-foreign holsters. On, Isn't that a quote from Xi Jinping about foreigners in general? Just, just stop being an, an asshole, asshole dude. Yeah. Just stop being an asshole. Okay, uh, let's 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 move on. Okay, so what did Jim Fallow say? He, but, no, I, I, 
what we are interested in is science. That's what right. you brought this up. And this is a little bit different from innovation. Okay, I let's think talk about science. One of then. the things that I love about China that I think the government is generally doing right and that the culture is generally aligning itself with the government, with the people in a right way, is a very pragmatic approach to science and technology, which is that if something is scientifically valid, we'll go for it. And with the small exception of Chinese medicine, which, uh, you know, is a blight uh, upon Chinese thinking, in my mind. Um, but with, 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 if you can ignore Chinese medicine and a lot of the superstition associated with that, generally speaking, China is a place that respects science and technology. You don't have people who disbelieve in evolution because they are primitive. You don't have people who uh, are against uh, vaccinating children because of some, you know, complete nonsense new age beliefs. People here will generally respect scientific progress and technology. You you are re- you are redeemed. Thing. You are redeemed. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Uh, like I said, Jim Fallows in, in that same piece, he he actually he praised the sort of can-do spirit, the ambition uh, of not just Chinese people but also of Chinese institutions. I think that's something I could fairly say. Um, they're, they're, Can do spurt, definitely. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's, I mean, one of the things I do when I take students around Beijing, the American students, and we're walking around, I tell them to always look at the very small stores and small restaurants that we walk by, the ones that we generally ignore in favor of taking pictures of the Walmarts or whatever. And I tell them that behind almost all of those stores is a story of, you know, usually a family who's pulled together, a, you know, a set amount of resources not a lot by U.S. standards, but quite a bit by Chinese standards, and invested it in one person to come to a place like Beijing or Shanghai to open a small store, open a small restaurant, open a small company. And one of the things that I think I'm most impressed about in China today, and really it's been a large part of the story for the last 30 years, has that been can-do spirit, we're just going to make this happen. And that entrepreneurial drive, that innovative or not, Jeremy, that is very kind of part and parcel of the American myth, is alive and well in China. Absolutely, absolutely. Perhaps more more, more so in China uh, than in the U.S. I had a conversation with uh, Jesse Apple, who was a guest on uh, our show recently, sure. about uh, new American graduates, and he was talking about his peers, uh, you know, people who are in their early twenties, just graduating from college, and really struggling to find jobs. Um, and worrying about this a lot, a lot of his friends. It wasn't about him himself, but his his peer group in the United States. And I was kind of thinking, like, what are, you know, finding jobs? What are you talking about? I mean, open a business, you know? That seems, I don't know. In, in China, I don't hear com- people complaining about that. It's more difficult to get a job in China than it is in the United States. I, I don't hear people that age complaining about that here. Yeah, that's I, fair, fair enough. Uh, I mean, I do hear, I mean, you, you hear... Well, we're not going to go into negative territory, but of course, of course, you're going to read those stories about the ant tribes. You're going to yes, read those yes, stories you about, do hear people about you know, 38 percent of people in, of recent college graduates in, in Shanghai still not having had work lined up this year. That's right, but 50 percent of them open their own store in Taobao, right? So or something, <laughs> you know. Okay, so now I think what we want to do is like well, let's go around. Each of us has a list, and 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 just you know pull something off of your list, and 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 start with Jeremiah. What's uh, another thing that you think that China is getting right? Well, here's a small thing, uh, but I think it's significant. About, what is it now, two years since China banned or started to restrict the supermarkets from just handing out 
plastic, plastic bags. bags. Right. And that kind of pollution has, in, I mean, not to say that China's streets are clean or the air is great, but one thing that you have noticed is a lack of plastic bags all around the streets or littering up the, the landscape. And all I could think of was if they tried to pass, I mean, they tried to pass that law in the U.S., you would have had, you know, whatever organization represents the grocers and the plastic industry, you know, with their lobbyists. And it would take, it may be, it might pass, but it would take years. In China, they basically said, you know, uh, plastic bags, not so much this year. And it happened. Now, uh, to me, I think that, I mean, that, that, that when, when um, the government or the municipal government and the national government puts it in their mind to do something like that, it gets done. And that's, I mean, I, I don't want to get into this whole, like, again, 50 no, cent sure. argument no, of like I, a pee on authoritarianism. But you know what? Beijing's a better place because there aren't white plastic garbage bags Absolutely. everywhere. It is. And China's a better place because we have high-speed trains and you can get to Shanghai in five hours on a beautiful train. Why? I mean, uh, <laughs> there are many, many, many reasons uh, one can say, okay, because uh, they are able to be authoritarian and they can get things done. But yeah. I'm going to put a cell phone a tower on your building and you're going to like it. Right? No, I mean, this is right. true. I mean, well, you know, the, the, all the story. So. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, you hear all the stories about drop calls in San Francisco and New York. I've been, you know, with students in the Tibetan Plateau and all over China, weird, odd places. Everywhere I've been able to have cell phone reception enough that I could actually get the score of the Boston Red Sox game. That's something. That yeah. is a big thing. Infrastructure is huge. So what I'm going to say, I'm going to go back. Uh, sort of underlying a lot of this stuff is what I, what I would single out for praise above all else is the Chinese leadership's timely embrace of technocracy as a form of government, which I think was a appropriate for the historical period that China was in, one in which they were laying down massive infrastructure projects, you know, hydroelectric dams and, and things like that, uh, in which they were rolling out gigantic, you know, cell networks and, and, and fixed line networks. Uh, and B, I think, was actually kind of a good cultural fit for China uh, at the time. I mean, China, a country that's always sort of privileged knowledge elites. China, a country where you know there is this this idea that uh, your you, the knowledge elites kind of uh, rank against this this accepted state orthodoxy, which is now sort of a scientistic one and has been really since. You know, so, I reads two experts. Uh, look, zero. Kaiser, yes, yes, yes. I mean, can we basically summarize this and basically say that one of the great things about the Communist Party running China is they respect science and engineering. They are atheists. And so they're pragmatists. They turn, and they are pragmatists so, pragmatists so that they, they reject all explanations that are supernatural or spiritual in favor of explanations for society and life that are completely practical. And a lot of people don't like this at all about them. But personally, I think it's one of the reasons why they get things right. right. Isn't that what we're talking about? That is exactly what I'm talking about. And Jeremiah may disagree about the state atheism. I mean, for me, state atheism is wonderful. <laughs> I, I, you know, having grown up in like, Amen. Uh, uh, you know, uh, n Christian nationalist South Africa, Arriving in a place where it was like atheism was the default instead of like the freaky setting was wonderful personally. But it also seems to me that it takes a lot of the bullshit out of so many things in political life when the state's default position is that religion doesn't get to decide whether we build a highway or not. Well, here's an example. I was talking with a friend of ours, Richard Berger, who just recently wrote a book about sexuality in China. Yeah, we had Richard on the show. Right, recently. and we were talking about um, the the quest for, you know, um, respect for the for, for gays and lesbian lifestyles, LGBT 
in China. One of the things he said was there's a long way to go. But one thing that, you know, people who are gay in China don't necessarily have to deal with that they do in the U.S. is this religion. And in some cases, I mean, it's not state religion, but in order for many politicians in the U.S. to get elected, they have to at least, you know, play lip service to some kind of religious background. Um, but they don't have to face, a, you know, a religious persecution. Now, there's other issues to there, to be sure. But that's one, at least, that's not there. Mm-hmm. Okay. While we're on the, the the subject of the party specifically, there's something that I want to I want to single out for that I think they they did correctly, and it's something that comes in for an awful lot of mockery, um, you know, just because it just it's maligned and ridiculed and it's it's, it's just, it just sounds so stupid. But it's the three represents. <laughs> you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. The three but, represents. Kaiser, could you refresh could you refresh the memory of our listeners as to what the three represents actually says? Okay, so I mean without having to actually recite them, I mean, you know, it's it's the most advanced forces of production, the most advanced cultural forces and uh you know, the party and, and represents also this was Jiang Zemin's Jiang, Jiang Zemin's, you know, signature key theory. ideology, basically. But but what, what what I think people miss is that how how this has truly injected life into the party, uh how this has uh, really made the party uh, uh, a big tent. I mean, has has, has pulled entrepreneurs in. The has ideological pulled... equivalent of Jello shots. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose basically the problem is that the the Communist Party's propaganda department kind of lost about... the plot in in the sixties. And since then, they've been unable to come up with a single slogan that is compelling. Oh, sure they have. It's called, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Speaking of not innovating a slogan. Well, that, but uh, that's not a slogan. That's actually a practical effect of their rule. They made most people richer than they were four years ago. Right. But the three represents should have been a slogan like the big – I mean, if, 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 if Jiang Zemin was American, it would have been the big tent. Or something like or, that. Or something like that. He would have been said, right. our more communist inclusive. party is welcoming of everybody in society or something. But I mean, so but the meaning irrespective that you're, of, of, you're talking about, right? right the, is the bungled, the bungled PRing of it, the bungled language, right. uh, copywriting, bad but, but, copywriting. Right. The bad copywriting aside, the actual substance of it was good. It brought in managerial types. It brought in uh, into into the party ranks, and yes. I think it really very much changed the nature of of it, it. Sort of reinforced what we were talking about before. It's sort of uh, uh, competent technocratic side. It reinforced that it took ideology, uh, ideology, uh, yeah, specifically Marxist ideology, away That's right. as a prerequisite for having a political life in China. It also opened up, if you will, a kind of an innovative way forward for China's government to develop. And here I'm going to take a page um, from a scholar in Beijing, Daniel Bell. Hang on a second. <laughs> you, you need a drink. I, we all need a drink before we talk about it. But actually... Uh, you know, Dan Bell and his co-authors, they didn't come up with this idea, but they have popularized it, this notion that uh, a future Chinese government could have representation, but not the geographic representation that you see in the UK or in the United States, but in terms of representation of different interest groups and social groups. And, you know, I have to say, that's an intriguing idea. If we were to, for a moment, reimagine the U.S. political landscape, um, where representation in the Congress was done by social group or interest group. You mean K Street, not the ballot box? <laughs> no, but I think, but if, but actually, if you looked at different classes or different unions or different groups in society, I mean, you know, this is again speculation, wild speculation, and about half done with my drink speculation. But you know, it there is something about this, and I think the three represents, you know, paved the way for that to be a future possibility. Okay, Jeremy, pull something else off your list. 
Um, well, let's go for something frivolous. Lack of liquor licensing laws. <laughs> and th- th- this was also um, brought up by Hudson, one of our interns, who we asked uh, our intern. Uh, he brought it up twice. Submit to the, uh, the same list. And Hudson sent in, like, you don't have to. What is it in America? No you have to bottles, cover the right, right, no, right. No, no open op- container. Open containers. containers. That, I think, maybe is a specifically American thing. But basically, a general absence of Judeo-Christian, like, prissiness about booze in China is quite nice. Right. And like, therefore, yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's weird stigmatization that, that sort of builds up this this false need. I mean, so that people binge drink the way that they do in, in And America as a result, college. or I, I don't know. No, I don't think you can say as a result. Maybe it's, uh, it's difficult to know what's the chicken and what's the egg. But there is a lack of binge drinking culture in China. Except among officials. <laughs> well. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa there. I mean, how many dinners have expats. you been to that ended up becoming the Olympics of Vaijo consumption? All right, I, well. I, I'm sorry. Chinese people, even the most drunken ones, don't drink in the same way as Westerners. They generally, they will not drink if there's not food around. Even the most alcoholic Communist Party officials will not drink if there's not food around. There's a much healthier drinking culture here. Okay. Even the binge, binge drinkers do not drink like Western b- binge drinkers. So, you know, but the, the, the side of that that the Communist Party hasn't screwed up is they have not adopted Western-style Puritanical liquor laws that So that you can get right. like 50% proof argoto at the local corner store that doesn't have any kind of license. For right. Great for starting, you know, barbecues too. Um, Very good, yeah. Here, here's one from my list. Here's one from my list. I mean, and this is a little wonky, maybe, but privatization of state assets happened in China, is happening in China without really creating a, a truly uh, horrific oligarchic class the way that it happened in Yeltsin's Russia. It just wasn't so pell mell and, and so poorly thought through. It's true. Uh, there, there was a you know supervisory body that was sort of on top of it uh, as as major state assets were sold off and privatized. Uh, of course, this process is still ongoing. But if you compare this to what happened in the former Soviet Union or in any part of the, the East Bloc, the former East Bloc, uh, it's been a relative success. I'm not. I don't think I'm going to get any arguments from you guys there. So I'm just going to assert that as fact. I, I would say it's just been much, much, much more inclusive and. You know, the, the people who have benefited from the privatization, many, many more people. Right. And the people at the top haven't become quite so rich. Right. You couldn't call it an oligarchy, for example, like you could in Russia. Right. And I think, as Jeremy says, if there has been any kind of shenanigans with the privatization process, those shenanigans have been well spread out. Um, and, okay, so we'll put that in the wind column. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I, we I, should put that in the wind column. Well, how about another one? How about the, the the conspicuous lack of any kind of real military adventurism? Yes, since, at least since 1980. So I mean, you get a lot of people out there. You know, I was talking about China is a belligerent state, but show me an instance since you know where the, they've the shot Vietnam a bullet. Campaign, where they yeah uh, fired shots in anger. Okay, there was 1988 and the waters off the Spratlys, but that not was not really. It. I mean, but they've never gone into another country guns blazing. They've, they've, the, they've, the track record for the last 300 years isn't good. I mean, it's not that they haven't invaded other countries. I'm talking about since 1980. Since 1980. No, I'm just saying that they remember the they're last not 300 good years. They're it. just not good at it. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe they just realized that they shouldn't Whatever the invade. cause, I mean, the, the, the but, effect is I'll, that... I'll take this. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Kaiser. I think that this is at least one area where China has shown a lot of restraint. And, um, you know, 
if the if China engaged in the kind of adventurism that the U.S. did, for example, and I, goodness knows, I'm going to sound like a 50 center here, but if a Chinese soldier had killed 16 people in Africa, and his response was, "I guess there's no reason on earth why I did it," like we just heard from an American soldier in Afghanistan, the internet would melt, or right. at least our little corner of it, and. This has not happened. Now, it, will is this something that's going to continue in the future? I mean, one of the biggest tests of Xi Jinping is how well he's going to manage China's international role without resorting to this kind of military adventurism. And I'm not necessarily sure he's going to be able to do it. We're, we're all in agreement on that. I think we're all in agreement. No military adventurism. So far. and you So know, far. And I don't think it's going to happen, you know, Diaoyu Islands notwithstanding. Uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Okay. You got another one on your list, Jeremy? I got a ton on my list. I mean, I've got a basic healthcare system. Ah. Despite the fact that I think, uh, you know, people say, okay, the, the healthcare system really is terrible and there's so many problems. I think generally people who say the Chinese healthcare system sucks have not spent that much time in like the Central African Republic and places like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to me, we're when, when, the hurdle just a wee, wee bit low there. No, we're not. This is a country you know, that has most of the poor people on the planet. And you can get medicines, good medicines, in any tiny, tiny, buttfuck, horrible little shithole place anywhere in China. Like having supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, so I, I, don't, the, I don't think it's setting the ball up. <laughs> I, I think China's healthcare system is generally criticized by people who compare it to a Western healthcare system. Except I think it is yeah. remarkable. I, I refer you all to our, our, our recent podcast on the healthcare system in China, and, and, and we'll leave it there. Um, I, Jeremiah's got his hand up. What do you have? One thing I would like to say, too, is there's, a, there's something to be said about the Chinese educational system. Ooh, and you say this on Gaokao Day. Well, there are a lot of parents out there currently chain-smoking out, you know, at the gates of middle schools and high schools. I like the fact that the Gaokao is great. It's like the SAT. When I took the SAT, my parents were like, do well, study hard. We're, no matter what happens, we're proud of you. In China, it's very similar. Do well, study hard. No matter what happens, we're proud of you. But if you screw this up, your mom's dying in poverty. So a little <laughs> pressure there. But the idea of the education system is that there's a large percentage of the Chinese population that has had at least an eighth grade education. They are basically literate. They are basically capable of performing mathematic functions. And I want to compare that with a lot of other developing countries where you have a hyper-educated elite and a high percentage of people who are illiterate. And one of the things about building an economy or building industry is if you have a large population of people who can at least read and read and arithmetic at a certain level, that allows you to have, um, have them perform certain higher-level functions than you know, if you, have a, 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 if you have a working population that can't read and can't do math at all. So here it is. The educator says, this is what I admire about the Chinese education system, that for a large percentage of the population, there's some basic education there. And that's one of the reasons I think China has done so well in terms of developing its industry. No, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, literacy rate here is actually a you know, very impressive, I think, like 92% or something like that. Uh, I invite you guys all to check out Index Mundi. Have you guys all seen this site? 
um, indexmundi.com, uh, where you can get all sorts of terrific stats. I was actually perusing through through this just to look for things like uh, life expectancy, female life expectancy, for example, is like at, at 75 in the year 2013 now, uh, which is is you know five years off of the United States. But if you look at the curve of where it's come from, you can because you can you can check it you know years and years back. It's just crazy how how how, it, how much it has improved in this country. Here's another one: the women. Now, before everyone just starts filling up the comments section with the Chinese woman thing, what I mean is that if you compare the 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 way that women are able to get ahead in business to a certain extent in government uh, in China, when compared to a lot of other countries at a similar level development, particularly in Asia, uh, China, you know, has done a lot. Of, I mean, this goes back even 1950s. Le- leaving aside the fact that there have been Bangladeshi, Indian, and Pakistani. And uh, uh, and Indonesian. All right. Well, you know, top uh, leadership, not so ministers much. But you know, this even goes back to like the, the, right after 1949. You know, the marriage law that was passed in the early 1950s that granted women the right of divorce, granted them property in the in a case of divorce, was you know forward thinking for the time around the world. Oh yeah, absolutely. If not, if not even in Asia, the fact they had to redo the law again in the 1980s because no one listened to it the first time isn't really anyone's fault. But you know, one of the things you look at the the Gaokao is coming up. I, you know, take a look at the top Gaokao scores. They're going to be young women. Take a look at the rich list that they publish each year. A lot of those are women who are wealthy on their own. Look, I think there there are a lot of problem for women in China, and we have in fact looked at them even quite recently on this podcast. But if you ask yourself, would you? I'm not pre- saying it's a would, feminist would, paradise, Jeremy, no, it's but not. I'm just saying. But would you prefer to be born a woman in China or Ghana or Uganda or India or Pakistan? Or Afghanistan, you'd probably pick China. Sure, sure. Would you say that they've smashed enough of the old? You think the legacy of the Cultural Revolution is uniformly negative? Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to go there. You're you know, not gonna I'm go not going to. No, no. Go if you're go looking, if you're looking for an iconoclastic you know, moment, if you want to give it a iconoclastic moment in Chinese history where the undergrowth was swept almost to the point of you know extremism. You're looking at the May Fourth. Yeah, but that was culture- only within a very narrow band. Of, I mean, it was in the intelligentsia alone, right? The Cultural Revolution was a bit like, oh my God, Doctor, the wart's gone, but I'm so missing my all my limbs. Right, 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 right. I mean, I don't really see how you can. You but they grew back. <laughs> Here's another one that I, I I would say that I actually I do believe. You know, for better or for worse. What other country right now stands as any kind of a bulwark, a, a, a an honest cr- critique of neoliberal Western democratic capitalism? Vermont. Okay. <laughs> All right. Besides Vermont. No, uh, I mean, um, this. I, actually, I mean, I think this is one reason I want Xinhua to succeed. You know, Xinhua has this new idea about global media organization that can cover the world from a Chinese perspective, and I want them to succeed. They probably won't, but the world does need more alternative perspectives to kind of the Western narrative on international affairs and international economics. And it has too few right now. And, you know, the idea that there are people in China, maybe not in the government, who espouse a critical uh, eye towards, you know, the idea that there is only one way to develop, there is only one modernity. Right. I think that there's a lot of value to that. And as sooner that intellectuals and media organizations like Xinhua can free themselves from the shackles of guiding public opinion, the better off China will be and the better off the world will be. There is something kind of racist about some of the ways that the West looks at a country like China. I think that one doesn't really want the uppity yellow man to sort of 
you know, be in the right. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, uh, as crude as it is to say that, I mean, I think that is a real factor in the way global affairs are discussed in the English language media. Okay, I mean, as you know, people like you, Kaiser, and, right? Exactly, as with your slanty almond eyes, <laughs> we can't really trust you to uh, uh, hold up our Western values. Epicanthic eye folds forever. Yeah. Uh, hey, listen. So let's let's end on something fun, okay? I mean, we've talked about the state, what the state does. Um, Jeremy, you, you know, I think a lot of people who who we asked to kind of kick in ideas, we all landed on one thing: food. Yeah, food. Right, right. and then Jeremy and actually, yeah, and I had a little bit of an argument. I, I wanted to kind of say like, let's let's make this all about what the state does well. And Jeremy raised the fair point that you know this is one thing they they didn't fuck up at least. I mean, yes, know. no, it is because I blame the state for all the problems in China. <laughs> so <laughs> the the things that they didn't fuck up, I think we should also give them some credit for. And food is one of the things from 1995 the first year i was here i remember i wrote a letter to my mother that she still reminds me of saying that the thing about china is that anytime you get depressed just go out and have a good meal and you'll feel good you know i mean this place is oh, extraordinary yeah and it's food. it's i mean for, for all the 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 gutter oil and the yeah you might, die, you might die you might Cadmium die you might die poisoning but, right but but really still the food here is just just astonishingly good and we I mean, I, I was here in the late 1980s. I remember what life was like before the advent of privately owned restaurants, and it was hell. It was not so it, good. It was just yeah. true. It was truly hell. Anyway, let's let's wrap this up and, and talk about some some recommendations for the week. All right. Yeah, and Jeremy, would you like to start? I do. I, I have one that's a slightly dodgy one because it's connected with Seneca, our interns at least, Hudson. I don't know if Jamie, but Hudson and at least and Nicole. Nicole are working on it. It's a podcast. Uh, also with Eric Fish, I think, is involved, who has been a guest on this uh, on Seneca uh, at the Economic Observer. And it's called, I think, China... Hang Up. China Hang Up. China Hang Up. Uh, and they have a few episodes up. The most recent one is Go East, Young Journalist, talking about how to make it as a journalist in China. It's great. I, I love it. I mean, it's it's really aimed at, at you know, younger expatriates. It's not like these crusty old fuckers like, like the three of us in this room here. But the, These are the people who will eventually kill us and steal our jobs. Right. Because they're right. young. They're, they're great. Anyway, they're doing a podcast and... And the first one was on entrepreneurship in China, and that was an, an excellent, excellent podcast. Yeah. Too. Clearly, they're aiming to. And of course, they're recording it here at, at Pop Up Chinese Villa. Villa. Right, at the Villa. Um, great recommendation. I was, you know, it's one that I, I plan on making. Jeremiah, do you have something for us? Well, we've long lamented the fact that the blogosphere in China is very Beijing-centered and Shanghai-centered, so it's good to recommend one that comes from other parts of China, and even one that re- re- reminds us that China is part of an international community, so I'd like to recommend the new blog East by Southeast, based out of Kunming, China, and covering uh, relations between Kunming, Southwest China, and uh, Southeast Asia, and in fact, uh, just recently had a great uh, bit where they were live tweeting the recent demonstrations uh, from Kunming. So if you're interested in life outside of Beijing, Shanghai, and the Pearl River Delta, whatever they're calling that, and uh, you want to get a little sense, too, of how China is interacting with its near neighbors, uh, I recommend checking that out east by southeast. Okay, finally, for me, I want to recommend a couple of things actually to be read in tandem. Uh, one is Jeremy Page, uh, his piece on Wang Huining, 
uh, in the Wall Street Journal. I just read that. Is, I second that. Yeah, yeah very yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wang Huining is sort of the, the power behind the throne. He's been a close political advisor now for three consecutive Chinese presidents, for Jiang Zemin, for, for Hu Jintao, and now for Xi Jinping. He's actually probably there in California with him right now. I know that he was you know, with him on some of his earlier travels. Really fascinating piece. Uh, and again, he's, he's somebody who is who could be very, very easily... I mean, he's he, he may be... Described as kind of the, the architect for um, the post Deng era. I mean, the whole the architect for um, behind that kind of combination of uh, reformist economic policy and kind of an embrace of nationalism. And why I say that this needs to be read in tandem with this other piece. Um, there's an op-ed piece. It's called Xi Jinping's Chinese Dream. We'll link to it. And, and I apologize to the author, but uh, I, I, he's he's a very senior. A finance guy, he, but he explains in very nice layman's language why it is that nationalism isn't at odds with Xi's agenda of economic reform, but in, it, it is in fact actually part of why Xi, I mean, well, he explains why Xi actually needs to burnish his nationalist bona fides in order to put that agenda into practice. So uh, it, it, it really kind of nicely explains the linkages between nationalism and uh, economic reform and it's actually, I think it's a very good piece. Anyway, thanks, guys. It was fun. 50 Cent episode. The 50 Cent episode. Thank uh, you, guys. And we can all, you know, go buy whatever. Ka-ching. Ma-chan will buy. Right, ka-ching. <laughs> a little piece of chewing gum. All right. Uh, anyway, we'll see you guys all soon. We'll, uh, we'll see. Uh, right we'll after see. our new Mavis. Take care, folks. Bye-bye.